Section 30 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Heaven Already, Part 3. What we have now to contemplate is the joy of the eternal word as it was and is communicated to his sacred humanity, and especially as it was communicated to it in the infancy. Sprinklings of the fountain rained even on Mary and Joseph. Shadows from those heights fell also on them, and beautified them where they fell. St. Joseph's awe-stricken joy in being the shadow of the Father was a communication to him in its measure of the joy of the Word in being the express similitude of his eternal Father, while Joseph's love of Jesus, having in it none of the natural love of an earthly father, was a shadow of the blissful love of the Father for his eternal Son. Moreover, his office of special minister and steward of the sacred humanity privileged him to participate, in his degree, in the joyous love which the Holy Ghost bore to that dear humanity. Mary's joy in Jesus was a still deeper and more substantial shadow of the complacency of the Father in him, because of the reality of her maternal office, and loving the Father as the Father of her Son, and her Son more as the Son of the Father than as her own. There was a blessedness in her love resembling the jubilee of the Holy Ghost in the divine persons from whom he is eternally proceeding. Meanwhile, if it ever might be said that deep joyous love identified a mother and her child, what identity of love was there not between Mary and the Eternal Son? The authority of Catholic writers has allowed us to call the Holy Family the earthly trinity, and thus, like the soft-footed shadows of the cedars moving in slow silence with the sun over the sequestered lawn, the flake-like shadows of divine things drop as noiselessly as nightfall over the holy family, making the earthly trinity a transcript of the threefold majesty in heaven. We have seen the joys of the eternal word in the bosom of the Father. Let us look at them now on the lap of Mary. The first joy of his sacred humanity was in his adoration of God. The highest happiness of the creature is in his adoration of the Creator, with the closest adoration of which a created spirit is capable. Now the sight of God produces in the soul the highest adoration of which it is capable. Whence, whether we look at a created spirit as passively receiving into itself, through the light of glory, the beatific vision of the Most High, or as it were, rising up, aided by that same light of glory, to meet the magnificence of the vision by its own acts, we shall find that adoration expresses more nearly than any other word the glory and the bliss of its union with God. If the sight of God did not awaken within the spirit the music and the splendor of devotion, it would be but like the sun pouring the gorgeousness of its unfertile radiance on the naked crags of some dreary mountain. But such a supposition is impossible. The vision carries with it into the creature a very world of light and joy and love and glory which form an ecstasy of rapturous adoration. Sin so impedes our love on earth and our love of God is so ungenerous and our attainments in holiness so mean that we do little but accumulate words when we speak of the processes of beatitude in heaven. Yet surely our own poor experience on earth must have already taught us that there is no pleasure in life's best experiences equal to that pacific tumult of delight which has many times stirred within our souls when we have been worshipping God. Our very senses seem to partake of the general gladness of our nature. Nothing is wanting. The rough is smoothed, the empty is filled up. 
a contentment which is mighty, although it is calm, insinuates itself everywhere, and even finds depths in our souls which we ourselves hardly suspected, and takes possession of them with a fullness which appears to double our life for the moment, both in breadth and depth. We are so completely made for God that we are not fully ourselves except when we are united with Him. The joy of that union, and it seems to be precisely the joy of it, makes our nature sensibly one. Nothing but adoration will fill a created spirit to the brim with joy. The lives of the saints illustrate this truth to us in ways which are almost beyond our comprehension. What then must it be in Jesus? If his adoration was in a sense equal to God himself, what must his joy have been? How far off were all the ecstasies of the saints from that rapture which bore up on its wings his marvellous soul right into the fires of the divinity? Look at the adoration of the soul of Jesus, that vast ocean of created worship, in whose immense tranquillity each spirit of angel and each soul of man is but a wave rolling onward to the throne of God, and breaking there in soft thunders of perpetual song. How refreshing is the inward picture of it to our love of God and to our pining for His glory. The eye travels over that radiant ocean, exults in its vastness, tranquilizes itself in the certainty of its profound invisible depths, drinks in the unearthly, and yet not wholly unearthly, sounds of its majestic waters, and watches with an unwearied pleasure in which hours pass like moments. Each wave, as it approaches the shining coast, crest itself with light, lift up on high its green, transparent wall of water, break with solemn sound in showers of light, and creep with its sheet of broken silver up the sloping shore, as if to kiss the sand and to be sucked in while in the act of kissing it. Of a truth, the adoration of the soul of Jesus was in itself a creation tenfold more magnificent than the whole of this grand universe. It was a depth which only the pleased mind of God could search, and only the divine wisdom could disport itself in the secret life of those enchanted gardens which decked the bottom of that ocean. It lay ever before God in the peace of unutterable gladness, yet the varieties of his acts, such as his acts of consecration, oblation, praise, thanksgiving and congratulation, were so many quickenings of his vast joy. They were almost momentary new creations of it, fresh worlds, endless self-outpouring oceans, successive infinities, because of the worth each act received from the touch of the person of the word. How gently he sleeps on Mary's knee, and yet how beautiful the vigil he is keeping in his unslumbering soul. At this moment he is exulting with joy in all creation. The wisdom which made it all lies open before him. The grandest advance of human science hardly gets beneath the surface of this wisdom. It can scarcely sink deep enough to hide itself under the waters, while it often wrinkles the surface and disturbs the clearness by the vehemence of its efforts. To the poet, the artist, and the man of science, creation seen through the mists which always teasingly envelop it to us, is so beautiful that it often fascinates our souls, and leads them away from God, as if the medicines which should strengthen us only made us light-headed because we are so weak. What then must creation be when it stands unclouded and confessed in the splendor of the divine wisdom? Yet so it always stood to the rejoicing soul of Jesus. Even to us the power which made it all seems marvelously gentle. 
It sleeps under the green turf, that is, earth's vesture, or whispers in the leafy woods, or tinkles in the streams, or hides under the blue calms of ocean, or comes with its awfulness smoothed into quiet beauty from the distant starry spheres. It only speaks a loud word now and then, in the threatening earthquake or the sullen storm, or in the brief fury of the volcano. But the calm majesty of omnipotence, its gentleness, its tenderness, its love, the exquisite delicacy of its self-restraints, combined with its terrific and immeasurable strength, how wonderful must they have seemed to our Lord's human soul! Still more, if we may talk as if he made comparisons, did his infant heart rejoice in the love which circulates in every sinuous pore of the vast universe as though it were the blood within its veins. He travelled in delighted thought, with speechless accompaniment of praise, along all these innumerable winding paths of creative love, sedulous that there should not be one obscure corner in all the countless worlds where his father's love should not be discovered, confessed, and worshipped with created love. But nature was almost a second beatific vision to him, when, from the eminences of his science, he looked over all its regions in one comprehensive view, and beheld there, mirroring with astonishing fidelity, the image of the most holy trinity. All the joys, and surely they have neither been few nor shallow, of poets, artists, and philosophers, were united and surpassed in this joy of the babe of Bethlehem, in the radiant significance and divine enigma of creation. He rejoiced, too, with a second joy, and one in which creatures can have some share, to whom the unquestioned sovereignty of God is the dearest of all doctrines, and the sweetest of all devotions. He rejoiced in the decrees of his divine person regarding creation. To his human soul the splendours of the divine attributes nowhere shone more clearly or more attractively than in the divine decrees. One while they were glorious with the beauties of the storm, another while no less glorious in the beauties of the calm. They sang songs around the throne, they were universal harmonies in whose concords all the divine perfections and all created things were blended into melody. They embroidered eternity into the grand patterns of time, and somehow eternity was brightened, not disfigured, by the work. In their light the perfections of God contended not with one another, but all throbbed in the one pulse of the divine simplicity. In their light all the difficulties of creation were seen to be but the exquisite workmanship at the point where it was most closely joined to God. In their light he saw the mystery of God's liberty magnified, not restricted, by the fixity of his decrees, while the liberty of the creature was secured by their limitations alone, in a plenitude which could not otherwise have belonged to it. How unutterable must have been the joy of his human soul in the knowledge that all these decrees were but the beams of his own brightness, only seemingly parted by the inaccessible clouds through which they come to us, and which separate them into beams, while of a truth the brightness behind is indivisible and one. His decrees made creation so much more dear to him that in them chiefly we seek for the deep-lying reasons of his love of creatures. Hence it was also because of them that the divine babe exalted so ineffably, as the Book of Wisdom teaches us, in sharing now through his created nature in his own creation, as if creation were at once so lovely and by him so tenderly beloved, that it drew him out of himself into its bosom. He could not let us have creation all to ourselves, he too must share it. 
a created nature shall be the choice inheritance of the uncreated Son of God. The third joy of the infant Jesus was his delight in his sacred humanity. The use of his reason was an endless pleasure to him. Every operation of his mind was accompanied with joy, and that from various causes. It arose from the harmony and perfection of his human nature, from the excellence of his science, from his sanctity, and from the hypostatic union. Even his senses were inlets to him of holiest joy, as they will be with the glorified in heaven, although his sensible glory lay shrouded under the common veils of infancy. To his man-loving heart there was also a peculiar joy in his feeling of kin to all humankind. A brother multiplies himself in the love of his brothers. There is something special in fraternal love to double and treble self and to add to the lives we already live. This is a gift peculiar to fraternal love, which filial, parental or conjugal love have not, or have it differently. They create other co-equal selves. Fraternal love miraculously multiplies our one same self. The infant Jesus was brother to every born and unborn child of man. He saw all his brothers the world over, in all its successive ages. He lived by anticipation in their hearts with minutest knowledge and most detailed sympathies. Their hearts had all their separate places in his sacred heart, and were cherished there as if he had but one brother, and could not sufficiently environ him with love. From eternity his delight had been to be with the children of men, and now his eternal desire was satisfied, and his soul drank always and drank deeply of this perennial fountain of fraternal love. From his love of men, fallen or unfallen, the transition is natural to his redeeming love, and to his love of suffering, which by his own law that redeeming love involved. He rejoiced, therefore, in his sacred humanity, as giving him what his divine nature could not by possibility have given him, and which, but for the miraculous intervention of infinite wisdom, it must even have rendered impossible for his human nature, namely the power of suffering. It opened out for him three regions of suffering, every one of which he traversed in its fullest extent, and, as never man has traversed them before or since, the body is gifted with powers of diversified agony, which it makes us sometimes shudder to think of. The possibilities of fleshly pain which may intervene between ourselves and the shelter of the grave are so overwhelming that the contemplation of them is unwise. Yet there never was a body which was gifted to open out such avenues of pain as his, and as far as we have light to see in the dim depths of the passion, all of them were pursued to the uttermost. With a like completeness he explored the soul in all its capabilities of anguish, and here again his soul was like no other soul because it was so preeminently endowed with the ability to suffer. A man's reputation is his external self, and is a third department of suffering in which we are almost tender, and where the bitterest part of our probation here is destined to be inflicted upon us. Jesus gave his away, as a man flings his garment to an angry beast, and it was torn in shreds, so that his nakedness upon the cross became but the outward symbol of the extremity of his shame. These were three kingdoms with which his human nature gifted him, and he wore them amongst the dearest jewels of his crown. It is true that suffering had become necessary by the necessity of redemption, yet we must look somewhat deeper. 
His sacred heart was probably not different from what it would have been in a purely glorious incarnation had there been no sin at all. Hence his love of suffering was not a new original instinct, an exotic transplanted into his heart with the passibility of his flesh, but only a new form which his exceeding love of creatures necessarily took under the circumstances of a fallen world. The joy of his human nature in his divinity was a fourth fountain of blessedness in his infant heart. It is useless to speak of its joy in its union with the divine person. We can not only conceive no greater joy, but we cannot conceive how so great a one as this was possible to a created nature. No power short of God's could have upheld it from sinking into annihilation under a burden so overwhelming. How was it not shivered to pieces? How was it not burned up? How did it not escape out of its own existence to elude the intolerable glory of such a fiery yoke? These are the questions we ask ourselves. We cannot describe such things. There is always something of a literary weariness in writing of these things of God. Epithet must be piled on epithet like Pelion upon Ossa. Adverb must qualify adjective or intensify substantive to distinguish between the manner in which what is said of creatures may also be said of God. Reiterated superlatives annoy the taste and tease the attention, and yet how dare we write otherwise than superlatively of the mysteries of God? It is not the style only that is studded with superlatives, the subjects treated of are themselves intrinsically superlative, and, whichever way we turn, all are equally superlative, leaving upon our minds, when the dew of sensible devotion is exhaled, a weary sense of tyrannical exaggeration. Thus the Areopagite, striving up to his subject with his new coined words, displeases us and doubtless displeased himself still more with his super-essential, super-celestial and the rest. And yet he ends by making deep things clear to us, though reader and writer both pay for it by the uniformity of exaggeration. The matter spoils the style, but it is a matter for which it is well worthwhile to spoil even less external things than style. But even so, with all the license of exaggeration, we can neither find nor fancy words to picture the joy of our Lord's human nature in his divinity. Nevertheless, the manner of the union is also to be considered as a distinct and separate joy from the union itself, leading deeply down into the divine perfections, and having the eminence of singularity which belongs to so very few of the works of God. That work, utterly hidden from us in its secret method, was joyously explored by his amazed and delighted soul. In this joy there was another joy which also lay apart. He rejoiced particularly in the ravishing beauty of the person of the word, in those mysterious appropriations which distinguished the second person from the first or third. Doubtless also in the obscure caverns of his incomprehensible gladness, there was even a joy in the absence of a human personality from his human nature. There was an incomparable dependence in this, which was full of excess of bliss, like the transported tremblings which have seized the saints when their souls within them suddenly widen into immensities, without landmarks, beacons, or pole star, and they float helplessly out to sea upon the sovereignty of God. We must add to all this his soul's enjoyment of the beatific vision and the marvel of its already enjoying it while he lay an infant upon Mary's knee. The saints lead joyous lives, even amidst their austerities and sufferings. Blind as we are, we can see that there is a vaster joy in one hour of a saint's holiness than in all the outspread mediocrity of lives like ours, 
prolonged for any number of years. If all emanations of God are joyous, holiness is confessedly the most joyous of them all. Have we ourselves ever experienced a joy in life which was equal to the common joy of being in a state of grace? But the joy of holiness is this joy intensified, and perhaps indeed it is something more than even that. Holiness is a very spacious thing, and God always fills in all hearts all the room which has left him there. But holiness is not only an exceeding joy, but it is gifted with a serene capacity of enjoying its own joy, which is by no means universal in the case of other joys. Nevertheless, by thus thinking of such joy of holiness in the saints as we can ourselves imperfectly understand, are we really approaching to any standard by which we can measure this fifth joy, the joy of the infant Jesus in his surpassing holiness? If the holiness is like no other, so is the joy like no other also. We have seen how lovingly he rejoiced in creation, but it is just his lovingness which makes creation perfect. Creation culminates in him. This is the reason all else looks so imperfect. Creation, to be understood, must be looked at in him. His holiness is the filling up of all its empty places, the fruitful crop of its salt seas, the habitableness of its mountain tops, the verdure of its deserts, the sweet, God-praising population of its solitudes. He rejoices in his unspeakable purity. Purity is most dear to God. He bears his own spotlessness in his bosom, as if it were the attribute of his predilection, which he cherishes as a mother cherishes her firstborn. He rejoices in the purity of creatures. He finds no other fault where things are pure. Purity of intention is the wood that sweetens all bitter waters. The power of a pure intention is the natural miracle of the spiritual life. The purity of Mary ravished the eternal word himself from heaven. But what is her purity, immaculate mother as she was, compared with the purity of his human nature, and how inexpressibly dear to his divine person must it be, while he rejoices to find united to himself, and so singularly his own, a spotlessness far excelling that which drew him down to earth when he beheld it in his mother. It was a joy to him, and a joy for almost a hundred reasons, that he was the fountain of holiness and merit to so many millions of his creatures, both before his coming and after it. It was a delight to him that, like a forecast shadow, his holiness had had such imperial power before ever it was yet created. He exulted to see the legions of angels like an endless perspective of light, clothed in splendor out of his human holiness. He looked onward, into the ages wearily climbing the mountains of time one after another, and it gladdened him to see how all earth was growing like a garden as the breath of his holiness blew upon it. Unrisen suns rose in his soul, and touched with light the fruits and flowers of far distant sanctity. Their fragrances came up to him from a long way off as the spice winds tremble far over the bosom of the Indian seas. He saw Egyptian Thebaids, and many another unlikely spot studded with enclosures of such rare exotic foliage and scent and bravery that no fabulous garden of the Hesperides might come near to their spiritual beauty. They were corners of earth, despised nooks of the world in which the odour of his sanctity hung for a moment and exhaled to heaven in these gorgeous, though transitory Edens. 
All Edens, alas, are transitory, but all Edens are the breath of the holiness of Jesus. He looked up to heaven. His human holiness was outstretched above like the canopy of its roof, and outspread below like the glowing pavement of its courts, and diffused through its magnificent abodes as the light that lighted it, and the odour that made it sweet. Thus it is his sanctity that colonises heaven, while it is also the sole ever-active principle of beautiful life on earth. As God, so Goethe said, for divine thoughts wandered strangely in his pagan mind, is ever in higher natures attracting lower, and so working in creation, Jesus, we may add, is the lever, or rather the magnet, to raise and elevate all creation to its resting place in the Creator, whence it has so sadly fallen. It is by his holiness that he does this work, and with what astonishing activity of joy must not such a work be necessarily accompanied. There are many things we wait to learn in heaven because out of heaven they are so poorly taught. Is not Mary one of these, and her love of Jesus, and his love of her, and a thousand secrets of her immaculate heart, which have not teased us here because it was so sufficiently sweet to love that we did not care to know? Thus we come to the fountain of his love of Mary in the heart of the infant Jesus, his sixth joy, and we sit down there as if idly musing. We know it is an unfathomable fountain, and it is joy enough for us to sit and watch it flow. So men watch mountain springs for hours, throwing up their pulses of crystal water with the lightest tinkling sound like the laughter of children. Uninjured, the charmed margin of particolored moss cushions that little sighing mouth of the huge mountain, and indeed of the old ancient earth, and the gleaming pebbles lie just inside its lips, as if to make it articulate and give it the power of song. They who sit there care not for the rocky veins in which those crystal threads have flowed so slenderly, until many of them were gathered into one to form this spring. They do not puzzle themselves with the subterranean wonders those bright wavelets have seen, or the remote action of the uneasy earth which long epochs since may have settled, that this rocky pore should be their orifice. The flowing of the water is enough for them, a joy to mark a day with such strong light that it shall be visible in memory when years have passed away. So is it with this fountain of filial love in the heart of the babe of Bethlehem, it was a joy of which we see but the outward signs of life, as the pulses beat beneath the skin. Who can tell his power of loving? Who can tell her worthiness of being loved? Yet, till he has first told these, who shall tell our Lord's joy in loving her? He rejoiced in the perfection of his natural filial love of her. This seems an easy thing to say, yet the thing intended, and so simple-sounding, passes our comprehension, for he is God. How shall God, in the exclusive majesty of his paternity, burn with filial feeling towards one whom he has created out of nothing? Everywhere the grand portent of the hypostatic union stands in our path, not so much forbidding ingress to the inner shrines, as giving light to illuminate the wondrous way. Everywhere it meets us, and makes things astonishing, which would else be commonplace. Everywhere it refuses to explain itself, and faith has to render those truths certain and familiar, which else would, even to our reverence, be incredible. He rejoices also in her sweet love of him. The incense of a whole creation is less to him than the grateful purity of her fragrant love. 
it is the breath of her beautiful being, and he nestles in it, as if it were a new life even to him. He grows upon her love, as if it were his nourishment. He lays his infant life down in it, that the splendour may play upon it, and lets it rest there, as if he had found a heaven upon earth. He clothes his little frame in her love, as if it were in shining angelic garments, and his bath is in the warmth of that clean love which his own precious blood has rendered thus incomparably bright. As he inhales her love, he delights in having created her. It is a joy beyond all price, a marvellous joy, that the son should have created his own mother. He delights in having saved her, saved her from sin by his never letting it come nigh her, redeemed her from captivity by never allowing her to be taken captive. And is it not an even yet more marvellous joy that the son should be the eternal saviour of his youthful mother, and should have saved her with so glorious a salvation before ever he himself was born? In both cases, such a son, such a mother. It is a jubilee to have one so like himself. It is another jubilee for him to take his likeness from another, as he did eternally from his father. It is another jubilee for him to have a creature to whom he can be like, who wore his features before he wore them himself, and who was the dear cause of his wearing them at all. The uncreated son exults in having a created type. Furthermore, there is another joy, which we will daringly conjecture in his love of Mary. As the trinity of persons makes the Godhead never lonely, though it is supremely one, so Mary's love, which was the offspring of her immense holiness, may please him by making his human merits seem less lonely, less exceptional, less utterly detached from the rest of created holiness. Saints, like beautiful scenes, require to be learnt. We must dwell by the side of such scenes in a sort of expectant passiveness, and let the changes of the seasons, the lights of the various hours from dawn to deep night, the alternations of storm and calm, and the many-coloured garment of the year, disclose to us the capabilities and realities of magnificent landscapes. So with the saints. We do not know them at first sight. We do not appreciate their sanctity. We do not discriminate between the different shades of their holiness. We do not instinctively seize upon that which is their divine characteristic, the singularity of their grace, the unshared peculiarity of their position as ornaments in the Church of God. Yet some saints reveal themselves to us more rapidly than others. They flash upon us, they leap up before us like a sunrise at sea, their brightness tells their whole history at once. Then again there are other saints, the very expression of whose sanctity is mantled with a look of almost impenetrable reserve. The supernatural is so deep down in them that it is hidden. The currents of life have passed so calmly and innocuously over them that they have not laid the character bare or discovered the strata over which they flow. These saints have not been placed in dramatic positions. Their histories are veiled in commonplaces. We should not take them for heroes on the surface. We only know that they are heroes because the Church has raised them on the altars. The great St. Joseph is one of this latter class of saints. We must be a dweller in his land. We must live near his door at Nazareth and watch him. He will grow upon us like a divine thing. He will open out before us and give out his meanings like a gradual patient revelation. The very ages of the church have had thus to learn him as well as his individual devotees. 
Each age almost has given expression to its surprise at finding him a mountain of much more considerable altitude than had heretofore been supposed. It is this which makes us feel that we are never speaking worthily about him. Yet how often have we needful cause to speak of him in this excursion of ours into the land of Bethlehem? End of section 30